And so it begins. The 60-plus page creation kickoff to X-Men Ten of Swords is here, marking the epic beginning to the 22-part X-Men event of 2020. The launch book is fantastic, effectively a Lord of the Rings for the Krakoa era of X-Men, with plenty to dig into. Today I'll answer, how does creation kick off Ten of Swords and what do we learn about the event? What major or minor revelations are given and what X-Men characters are most impacted? What are the secrets of Otherworld and Sword? And theories and predictions for what's to come in this mega X-Men event. Hey everybody, I'm Dave. You are listening to Crack and Krakoa number 93. This is the official part one of the Ten of Swords X-Men event. If you like the Comic Book Herald YouTube channel or Crack and Krakoa, please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing. It all helps me out a great deal. Spoilers for Discuss Comics, especially X of Swords, creation will follow. Writer Jonathan Hickman and Teeny Howard, art by Pepe Larraz, colors by Marte Gracia, letters by Clayton Cowles. We open this comic with a first horseman pounding on the gates of Otherworld, approaching the Starlight Citadel on their ultimate march to Krakoa, where the X-Men live. As we learned in X-Men number 12 last week, these first horsemen are the children of Apocalypse and have been trapped in the dimension of Amenth for generations, basically since Apocalypse left them there uh, due to a sacrifice as he views it. Opens with the first horsemen leading their assault on the Tower of Del Delore. They speak exactly like Hickman's East of West horsemen, <laughs> with a bit of sort of humor to them, a bit of sort of casualness that you wouldn't necessarily expect from beings of this nature, and they conquer this otherworld uh, protector, Dryador, on their march to the Starlight Citadel. So what is the Starlight Citadel? Well, it's a summarized nicely as the most literal representation of the conjunction of all realities. It's the nexus of all reality, realities in the Marvel Omniverse, which is a collection of all of their multiverses. As we've learned in the pages of Teeny Howard's Excalibur in the Dawn of X, the Citadel is without its customary Captain Britain core defense, which has left it to Opal Luna Saturnine, Omniversal Majestrix, to protect the Citadel, and by proxy, all of reality. Hickman's also here back on his Wheels Within Wheels grind, uh, a frequent refrain back in his work on Marvel's Secret Warriors in the end parts of 2009-2010, and a decent metaphor for plots, seeding plots, and the constant motion of story found in his superhero work. In Krakoa, Summoner comes busting through the external gate that Apocalypse built most recently in Excalibur number 12 on the back of a huge demon with a dying Banshee in his arms. It's far from shocking that Apocalypse has planned to send Banshee, Unis the Untouchable, poor Unis, and Summoner into Araco alone came up wanting, and if you aren't already getting Summoner skepticism vibes at this point, you're definitely a little behind the curve on, on where Krakoa is heading, because this, you know, he shows up alone, only he knows what's going on, he's got Banshee dying in his arms. At this point, I was definitely like, okay, all those theories that we've been talking about, that people have been saying about Summoner probably having a plan here that isn't aligned with Apocalypse, that's probably going to hold up. It's generally applicable throughout the entire book, but also, damn, do I love Pepe Larraz and Marte Gracia's ability to bring demonic and supernatural creatures to life. So Apocalypse brings his schemes to the Quiet Council for the first time, and Krakoa acknowledges he gave Apocalypse uh, approval, essentially, for all of this, like building the external gate, uh, creating this bond with the Starlight Citadel, Otherworld, and Araco. Apocalypse doesn't really have council approval for all this, though, with Magneto in particular deeply questioning his actions. Again, Summoner gives his account of what happened with no backup. Banshee is in a coma in the healing garden, so we can't testify to the fact that Unis is captured and Banshee is nearly dead. Um, it, this should raise some eyebrows, right? I, I think that goes without saying. There's a small detail here, but kind of weird, that Professor X, when he refers to Apocalypse, 
He calls him Ensabonur, which is his name, but it's not his mutant name. It's not that, you know, symbol A that Apocalypse has asked that mutants call him, which seemed like a weird oversight to me. For the most part, the council is opposed to Apocalypse leaving the external gate open and maintaining access to alternate realms, and in this case, near direct access to the Starlight Citadel of Otherworld. As Kate Pride points out, for the first time, I think we've seen her in a actual council meeting, they still have access to Avalon, so it's not like they can't get to Otherworld. I did also find it interesting here that the enemies of Krakoa that are named, Hominus Verendi, the Flower Cartel, Zeno, and Orcus, they leave out the Children of the Vault, who have been named by, as the most dangerous threat to mutants by Professor X himself. That's either an intentional oversight, because they're going to come up, or it's just they were naming enemies and that one didn't seem relevant at the moment. Nonetheless, like, they should be a big one that should be included in that group. And I appreciate Mystique, of course, calling out Orcas as she's had some ties to them back in X-Men number 6. Uh, we do get a Heliac Krakoa scene here where the Council votes to destroy the external gate, uh, you know, since it leaves them vulnerable, but Krakoa tells Doug, Ramsey, you need to understand your guests here. Our coexistence is collaborative and wonderful. It's a union of shared interests, but I am the land, and the land is mine. This was actually something I brought up in the live Kraken Krakoa uh, Tennisaurus prediction party, but we have not gotten a lot of insight into how Krakoa feels about mutants. <laughs> this is a really good start. Again, like Krakoa has the deciding voice in these matters. Professor X, you know, he is the, the leader of this group of the Quiet Council, but then when Krakoa comes in and actually has something to say, he's he's apologetic, right? And he's back on his heels. And it's kind of great to see, honestly. I will say here too, though, Krakoa talks about, you know, he talks about their relationship like it's a business partnership. It's collaborative and wonderful. Um, that said, this didn't necessarily sell me that Krakoa has mutant kind's interests at heart. Again, Krakoa wants to keep access to Arako open to become whole the way Apocalypse wants to make them whole. Uh, but could Krakoa, like, if that came at the expense of mutants to make Krakoa and Arako whole, would that take precedence? I think it's a fairly interesting question. So Apocalypse has to gather volunteers, leading to an interesting hodgepodge team, which has been one of the more interesting components of Krakoa, since all the mutants are together all the time, the teams are less standardized than they've been in the past. So the fellowship we have here gathering together is Apocalypse, Summoner, Rockslide, Richter, Siren, Beast, Angel, Polaris, Havoc, and Monet, and they're all gathering together to, as, as Polaris and Havoc talk about, you know, basically go blindly into this other dimension, into Otherworld, and try to do what exactly? We don't totally know. Part of this is a rescue mission to get Unis. Part of it is to figure out where are Apocalypse's first horsemen and these mutants that he left behind way back when. Uh, there's a really nice quote here during this issue called, you know, about, basically it sets up what's coming for Apocalypse, and it says, Memory is long. History is longer, and the truth will outlast both. One of the joys, I think, of the Dawn of X is given the scale of mutants that can be in any story, there are all kinds of long-lasting relationships that still haven't been explored more than a year into the Hickman era. One such is Angel and Apocalypse. You know, Apocalypse turned uh, Archangel, Warren Worthington, or he turned just Angel at the time, into his Archangel, his Angel of Death, back in the Fall of Mutants era in the late 80s in X-Men comics. That, that is a relationship that has been very fraught and complicated. And of course, Warren, he still does not trust apocalypse he he thinks he is you know that his undying certainty is something that that will lead to his downfall and basically warren is backed up within seconds as this comic proceeds before we get there though in the midst of this build-up we have even more exciting news we've got jonathan hickman and tom Mueller mapping other world designs and this is quite fun and i think going to go a long way to making excalibur even more interesting as as one detractor i felt in that book is sort of a chaotic sense of place 
as the mutant team makes its way through the realm. I think this will go a long way towards defining what Teeny Howard and Marcus Taylor are doing in that series and like the different realms they can now access, assuming Otherworld stands, <laughs> assuming these realms make it out of Ten of Swords. Uh, we've either seen most of these realms before or find out some more info about the Otherworld kingdoms in the next data pages, but the one real interesting one at callout is number 13, Mercator which is highlighted in blue. And Absalom Mercator, otherwise known as Mr. M, is one of two Omega-level mutants we still haven't seen in the Dawn of X, okay? So this realm, number 13, Mercator, it's spelled exactly the same as Mr. M's last name. That, to me, doesn't feel like an accident, <laughs> the fact. Now, in the comics, Mr. M's, like, comics history is very limited. It's very short. It's not like there's a clear otherworld connection, at least to my knowledge. Nonetheless, there's a lot of, like, kind of reality warping type powers out there that could put him in in this type of ball game, in this type of, you know, when reality is in question, maybe Mr. M makes sense. That, to me, is very interesting. There's also also, uh, this thing called Mercator Projection, which is a whole school of cartography. Uh, it's an intri intriguing connection, I think, to like map making and other world, but I won't pretend to understand maps literally at all <laughs> more than I do. I can barely make it home from work without my GPS rolling, so that would be a stretch for me to say the least. The page that made me the happiest of anything in this entire comic comes from the Otherworld Kingdoms map, where we're hitting Otherworld history. And in particular, we're hitting Alan Moore and Alan Davis's Captain Britain work from about 1982 to 1984, hitting it pretty hard, actually. In the span of one page, on the Fair Courts and the Foul Courts, we get references to the Fury, Mad Jim Jaspers, Roma, and Merlin, all major players in Captain Britain history. The main reason this is thrilling is I have a Kraken Krakoa coming this weekend, it'll be Kraken Krakoa number 95, on the Alan Moore written and Alan Davis uh, drawn run on Captain Britain, and its connections to the Hickman era of X-Men. And this data page cements that relevance in ways I yet again totally precocked. So definitely going to pat myself on the back on that one. Given I'm covering this in depth in another video, I'll just say that these are all absolutely crucial historical elements in the history of Otherworld and the pages of Captain Britain, with Jaspers and the Fury offering serious threats to mutantum in the future. And I'm also really fascinated by the presence of Roma and Merlin here, who I thought had fallen or were just kind of out of the picture prior to Saturnine's ascension, uh, because in the past, Opaluna has effectively reported up to them, although now that relationship is clearly inversed. So back in uh, Otherworld, Apocalypse is genuinely emotional about the sight of his long-lost children. And I buy that this is actually a huge poignant moment for him. This is definitely the softest we've seen Apocalypse, and he kind of pays for it. But honestly, his arc through both Excalibur and X-Men has justified these feelings. Of Genesis, the, hor Genesis, excuse me, the wife of Apocalypse, the horsemen tell Big Daddy A, gone, destroyed. She fell under the Twilight Blade. If anything, this frankly confirms my theory, growing in size and strength, that Genesis and Annihilation are still actually the same person, and that Summoner's story about what happened to her is kind of a ruse. Now, if we throw it back to X-Men number 12 here, I still love my theory that Annihilation could be Rasputin from the Powers of Ten timeline, and if there's more hints there, I'll go more in detail on that. But again, if we look back to the Genesis and Annihilation showdown in X-Men 12, and we consider what we know now about our pal Summoner, the changes that this story you know, the chances that he lied or it's somewhere between a half-truth and even metaphor is a distinct, distinct possibility. So I think the most likely outcome for me about who's behind the Mask of Annihilation is still that it's Genesis. It's still that it's like that's a transformation. Who she was, the wife of Apocalypse, that version of her is dead. Now she is only Annihilation. Unsurprisingly, the Horsemen and Summoner, they, they betray Apocalypse. They stab him, uh, one in the back, one in the front, in a sudden betrayal 
of their father and grandfather, respectively. We learn about the same time that Summoner betrayed Banshee and Unis. Nobody touch poor sweet Unis, please, uh, which is not shocking there either. While the story definitely sets us up to think this might be coming, the important thing here is that Apocalypse does not see it coming at all. Again, this is a very, very surprising betrayal for him. I mean, when he sees his children, the first horseman, for the first time, he falls to the ground, overcome with emotion, and, and the horsemen, though, they're really having none of this, right? They have been hardened. They have been built to be so strong, which ironically is like exactly what Apocalypse has been championing throughout history. The summoner on his turn, you know, his betrayal is very strong. He really takes a heel turn. He says, I am a summoner of many things. Most of all, lies. Got a really feel here for Rockslide. Uh, his Iraq and chess game with Summoner led to him getting sliced in half by Summoner's sword. The whole thing goes absolutely to hell for the Krakoan party, right? Apocalypse is stabbed. Richter and Beast are trying to get him back to the Krakoan gate. Richter gets shot with an arrow in the midst of doing this. Obviously, I talked about Rockslide. We don't know what's going to happen with him. I mean, like, that's he's been cut in half. Plus, we know Summoner knows his weakness. He knows, like, his true energy form. So that could lead to some resurrection problems as well. Things are not looking great. And then one aspect that goes overlooked here and kind of has throughout, like, Excalibur is how powerful Saturnine is in her domain of Otherworld. So she's kind of watching the proceedings from the Starlight Citadel and as the ruler of protecting all realities. And there's a, you know, the comic opens with a quote here supporting her power, stating, from Saturnine, all I see, I own and I am unsatisfied with the state of things. With a snap of her finger, Saturnine freezes both Krakoan and Arakan forces and gets to have a conversation and basically set up the rest of the event on her own terms. It's a huge power play where she basically just says, all right, children, set aside. I'm going to tell you how this is going to go for the remainder of the event. You all need to get off of my lawn. So Saturnine plays matchmaker, setting up the duel between Araco and Krakoa after first flexing her power and turning death into a cute little wolf pup so she can have this conversation. While she's doing this, saying, okay, you guys are going to fight on behalf of Otherworld. Araco, you guys are trying to fight on behalf of conquering Krakoa and taking back this territory that was yours, that you, you view as your own. All the swords get named here. So we get, okay, these 10 swords versus these 10 swords. On the X-Men side of things, we have the following. The Muramasa Blade for Wolverine, the Sword of Might, who I expect is Brian Braddock, the Starlight Sword, who I expect is Betsy Braddock, Grasscutter and Godkiller, I think are both going to be Gorgons, Warlock, has to be Doug Ramsey, the Soul Sword, Magic, the Scarab, probably Apocalypse, the Light of Galador is Cables, and then Skybreaker, I suspect, is Storm. The items that get my attention on the Emmon side are, one, the Twilight Blade, is this the same thing as the Twilight Sword Searcher has wielded in Thor comics, or just kind of similarly named? Two, Pog Your Pog is, has been labeled in the Araco Swordbearers as this giant kind of crocodile monster, but he's also a sword himself, so there's a potential implication here that these swords are actually wielding a crocodile monster, which will blow my mind. And then third, uh, Muramasa Blade, listed on both sides of the aisle. So Marvel's been teasing Solemn as Wolverine's new archenemy. He's one of the sword bearers of Araco. And remember, Apocalypse talks of the godlike mutants he had to banish to Amanth. Solemn could be of Earth before Wolverine, potentially an ancestor, potentially like identical in power set, wielding the same kind of blade from this previous era of mutants. If folks are interested in a Kraken Krakoa deep dive on the sword specifically, let me hear about it in the comments, as most of them tend to have fairly interesting comics histories on their own, and if there's enough interest generated, I will definitely do a video about that specifically. So, 
As all this is going on, again, this is a huge comic, there's a ton to it, Cable and Rachel are reading Banshee's mind for clues about what really happened. Saturnine tells Cable and Rachel, as she invades their, you know, their reading of Banshee's mind, she tells them of something that can help. And only Scott Summers uh, initially knows what this is. My initial guess, given the aim bodies that sort of lied around uh, Gene, Scott, and Cable as they, they went to find this thing, was it might have something to do with the world, but it appears to be more about space travel to a specific space station. So Scott, Gene, and Cable, they plunge Cable's Light of Galador, Dope Sword, into a trans space teleportation platform which powers up the sword acronym orbital space station now given the official confirmation i think today uh september 23 of a sword ongoing by al ewing and valerio shidi which i will not for the last time mention i totally called in my how hickman's x-men will conquer the galaxy video that just came out this is incredibly exciting right so like we've got sword already in play here i didn't expect it to come in this soon because the idea of the the cosmic scene in marvel doesn't necessarily feel like something that's going to connect with all the extra dimensional stuff going on in otherworld but apparently it will intriguingly all we learn of the sword station at this point is that it's like totally out of action they are under quarantine anyone who has gone to rescue mission to try and figure out what's going on there has not made it back we don't really get any more information than that other than the fact that the sword you know this peak station is down something something is deeply deeply wrong the question for me is why would saturnine send them sword why would she say okay sword is the answer well to me like when we look at the free comic day issues and the pages that get replicated here in creation Saturnine and her cohorts are corralling alien entities, right? They like they capture a this tentacled alien monster like from the heart of a star. And perhaps that's where the answers lie. My guess here would be contact made with the other faction of Araco natives who took a different approach like Summoner mentioned in his story to Granddaddy A in X-Men number 12, that these individuals actually working with Saturnine to grab in, again, as Summoner said, a different kind of salvation. I think this might actually be like a partial truth of Summoner's story, despite the fact that he's clearly this betrayer of Apocalypse, that they are out there trying to gather whatever these alien entities are, and that S.W.O.R.D. has something to do with this, and the X-Men can actually tap into that resource to aid themselves in their battle, because otherwise they're probably going to lose, is, is at least the read that I'm getting on this. So early in the oversized issue, I skipped over this, we actually, again, get a return to that 2020 free conflict day to row card teasers. There's a reprint of the pages. Uh, again, like I said, they catch the star beast in the context of the event, and it's li literally reprinting these pages we've read before um, for free conflict day. I was kind of disappointed initially, thinking, like, are they really just going to reprint these things? But on the cards, at least on the tarot cards, the text is completely different. Importantly, too, the X office, of course, remembers there's an original Hellion named Tarot, <laughs> mutant named Tarot, and she does uh, readings of the data pages. So Tarot readers the world over, mutant not, are pulling the same cards as Saturnine in the same order. This is clearly, clearly operating on a larger scale. So in the original, as one example, in the original Eight of Cups, there's uh, the presentation of two different women with Genesis. We now know this card represents Genesis, feeling disillusionment and abandonment, and Annihilation side, the mass side reading, that which was once the harmonious lifting of voices is now a mocking echo then silence okay again i think this card again the depiction is it looked like one person then the implication was like oh wait each half is a different person but now i'm back to actually thinking no it's kind of technically still the same person either way the updated reading of the card is recontextualized given what we know from the x-men number 12 prelude issue here's what it says now someone's heart has been left empty 
She has been waiting for something more. Will she turn away? Will she be turned away? A woman like this keeps her cup close. Okay, it's not necessarily super clear what exactly that means, but again, different text, different opportunity to sort of look at that and make predictions and theorize. That's pretty cool. And definitely like given that we know Genesis is Apocalypse's wife, you know, the, the someone's heart has been left empty. Clearly, we know what that is in reference to. All right, can we get any new theories out of this? Well, from a Teeny Howard interview she just gave on the Battle of the Atom podcast, tarot is another kind of sequential art. So I think that card readings are in the order they'll occur in the event, right? Like you draw these and then you place them in order. So it's like one, two, three, four, five. That's the story that tarot is telling, I think. Um, the readings here, tarot, the character's own readings, are very interesting. The first is judgment, final judgment and the rebirth of all in heaven. A couple thoughts here. This could allude to the apocalypse that, you know, Iraq is bringing and the rebirth of these mutants on Krakoa and on Earth 616, right? They've been banished from this realm for the longest time. Also, looking at all this talk of rebirth, the cover of X Factor number four, which is part two of this event, it signifies resurrection literally on fire. And the December solicits for X Factor call resurrection into question. I think there's a possibility here that there's going to be a finality with the resurrection process that is going to change it forever moving forward in the dawn of X. The four wands, well, we're returning to something with an image of the horseman. I think this is definitely going to tap back in what I just said about the horseman coming back to Krakoa, coming back to the earth which they are originally from. There's also an interesting line here that says the Zorn brothers would consider four quite an inauspicious number. Uh, I thought, one, it was interesting to reference the Zorn brothers again because we have not seen them, I think, since, like, the, one of the earliest uh, issues of House of X, Powers of Ten. But I did look this up, and in, in Chinese numerology, the number four is considered unlucky because it is extremely similar to their word for death. So that does make sense. The next card is the Hanged Man, which is basically telling us uh, we're going to kill your darlings, uh, which is kind of a, a writing you know, rule of thumb, you know, something that definitely stands out to me uh, most recently in the pages of Saga, if you guys have read that. And I think our options here are like, well, Apocalypse is an easy one, right? He's a fan favorite character. People love him. He's already deeply wounded. Uh, he's a possibility that could go. I've talked a lot in the past about Beast Sacrifice. The Hanged Man card also represents a sacrifice, and I think that is the only road to redemption for Beast. So to me, he would be a good fit here. Uh, and then also we have like Rock Slide is already certainly imperiled, and he's on this card. I think probably the harshest cut would be Richter, who is like sweetheart to Apocalypse, sweetheart to uh, Excalibur readers everywhere. I think that sacrifice, um, you know, your kill your darlings of that character would be pretty harsh. I don't know. That one, you know, it makes sense, but I don't feel great about it. Uh, number four here, the Eight of Cups. Obviously, we talked about Genesis and Annihilation. I feel like she's already decided what she's going to do here, <laughs> you know? Like, I don't have a, a ton of hope here that she's going to see Apocalypse and change her mind. I'm certainly not getting that implication, but that's what the cup is kind of suggesting she's going through. And then the final card, the Ten of Swords, says the worst pain you have ever felt, and then you will feel it no more. I think something's going to happen to change, again, the availability of the resurrection process. Apocalypse could come back without the memories that he has of these individuals, maybe without the memories of his children or of his wife, you know, because otherwise, how is he not going to feel that pain anymore? There has to be something there that takes it away. And, you know, I also have to wonder, like, could that mean the loss of him as a Krakoan ally? Is that part of what is driving Apocalypse to fit into this community and to fit into the Krakoan protocols? Could there be a separation of this mutant alliance that is one of its greatest strengths right now is everyone together is the sense of community. Could we get a breaking to that end, I think. It, it could definitely be where we're going if the Dawn of X, all of a sudden there's a separation because we haven't had that yet. 
So here we are. In conclusion, this was a huge, huge kickoff to the event. It's super exciting. I've I've only read it the once, <laughs> and I read it slowly so I could do this, but I'm definitely going to have to read it again because there's a lot here. Uh, one thing, you know, we talked about in the prediction party was uh, will Moira McTaggart make an appearance, and she did not. There's no Moira here uh, in the 2020 event kickoff. I'm curious if you guys think she will show up at all in this event. I still am kind of holding out hope that she has to make at least a cameo in either the stasis or destruction parts of the event so let me know what you think is coming next uh, in the comments here any theories predictions or thoughts on the review next time is x factor number four and the krakoan reads a new death so I, I my, again my theory here is like there's gonna be something messed up with the resurrection or specifically i think in this case it could be the five trying to figure out what to do about rock slide because that is perhaps a very complicated resurrection so thanks everybody for listening you can find ways to support crack and krakoan comic book herald on patreon.com slash comic book herald in particular i'd like to thank everybody on the mysterious benefactors tier thank you jeff zacharias ron paul kirkley jesse w robert mickelson professor pride steve brennan cole weathers martin lopez chris isidro brent bowser and professor x3769 i'm dave Beeson. you can find my stuff at comicbookherald.com at comicbookherald pretty much anywhere online if you look for the best comics ever and my marvelous year podcast you can find more podcasting from me so i'm gonna have coverage of every part of tennis swords i've got a playlist going that is the tennis swords playlist i recommend you check that out and follow there for all of the coverage and again i got a cracking krakoa coming this weekend covering the alan moore connections to the world of x-men which have never been more relevant because they got teased a little bit in a data page here and i'm super excited because <laughs> i already had the work done so thanks everybody for listening and as always enjoy the comics